going to ask you a question. Just answer to yourself. Think about what you think it would be. In your opinion, what is the greatest threat the church, not, not our church necessarily, but the church, particularly church in America, faces today? If we were to go around the room and answer this question, we would probably hear some of the more common answers given. Uh, I read a lot of church blogs and pastors and things, and so I see a lot of ideas and answers given to this throughout the normal week. And one of the most common answers given to this question or, or some variation of this question is the greatest threat has to do with the government in one way or another. We hear a lot about legislation with potential to hurt or destroy the church. Uh, And those things are real. There's certainly potential in those things. But here's what I have come to believe in my life. The greatest threat to the church will never come from the government, never come from legislation. In fact, when you read the Bible and when you read church history, one of the things you find is that governments have been trying to legislate and hurt the church since its inception. The church began to face government persecution almost right after the day of Pentecost. And yet the governments, every government which has ever tried, has failed. Because Jesus said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The greatest threat to the church will never come from without the church. Rather, the greatest threat to the church will always come from within, out in the middle of the church. And and let me show you a warning from God's word that I think reveals where the greatest threat will come from from within the church. It says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is he that keepeth the law. Now, the idea of vision here it refers to prophetic vision, uh, the, the prophetic revelation a prophet received from God as he took God's word to the people. For us, prophetic revelation is not some prophet saying, thus says the Lord, God showed me my sleep last night. Rather, for us, prophetic vision is God's word that we hold in our hands. The Hebrew word translated as perish It doesn't mean so much to die as it means more to like run wild. As it says in some translations, the New King James says it means that they cast off restraint. The idea isn't they die. Instead, they abandon themselves to their own sinful ways. Those who 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 reject the vision of God's word, God's prophetic revelation from from the word. they, They cast off all restraint. They begin to run wild in their unrestrained behavior. Where the word of God isn't found, where the word of God is rejected, where the word of God is not received, the people become unrestrained. They cast aside um, all really care about what God's will or God's way is, and they run wild. Now, the end of that is they perish. That's what the King James translators have done, has shown us the end of that kind of life. So where the word of God is not received, where it is rejected, the people cast off the restraint of God's word. They begin to run wild after their own sinful desires, and in the end, they perish. They they die from that. Now, something from this to understand is Proverbs was not written to the pagan world. Proverbs was written to it was Jewish wisdom literature written for believers in Yahweh. But this is not a, a warning to an atheistic culture or a pagan culture. It is a warning to those who profess faith in Yahweh. So for us, the greatest threat for the church today, it's not the government or any government. It is that we would cast off the restraint of God's word. It is that we would abandon God's word and begin to go our own way and do our own thing. The greatest threat to the church is for the people of God to abandon the word of God as the foundation for what we believe 
and how we live. The message to the church in Pergamos shows us why this is the case. So if you haven't already found it, Revelation 2, verse 12, it should be on page 950. When you find that, I'm going to stand on the reading of God's word. The angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now notice this part. Which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh will I give of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone. And in the stone is a new name written which no man knoweth saving he that receiveth it. The title of the message this morning is a threatened church. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us, Father, today to have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to us from this letter. Let us hear what Jesus has said. Let us, Father, let us take it to heart and let it weigh heavily upon our lives and help us to examine ourselves in light of your word and see if we have cast off your word in some way or another as the foundation for what we believe and how we live Father, the world around us is noisy. It's always telling us to believe this and to act this way, to live this way, to believe these things. And and really, if we're honest, nothing the world is telling us on how to believe or how to live is consistent with your word. It is all contrary. It is just forever the voice of the serpent saying, hath God indeed said. And God, we we are just constantly pounded. By these lies and these words and these teachings and these things. And to resist the pull of them is difficult. It takes intentional effort on our part. God, we we won't be able to do it in our own strength. We won't naturally embrace your word as the foundation of what we believe and how we live. We, We will have to be intentional about it and we will have to be strong In you and in the power of your might. And so we ask you today to let your word and your spirit drive down the stakes of our need. To let your word be the authority in our lives deep into our hearts and deep into our lives. Let your word and spirit reveal to us any area of our life in which we have believed the world's lies. Or we have embraced something from our own mindset, our own sinful desires. And God, let your spirit press on that and press on that. And press on that until we would cut it out and we would turn from it. And we would cling to the cross. Seek your forgiveness. Father, we need you today to strengthen us to be your people. We need you today to strengthen us to be a church that is built upon the word. A people, individuals built their lives upon your word. So that when the the rains come and the floods come. And the winds beat. That when the storm is past, we will still be standing because we're founded upon the rock of your word. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. 
Help me to say what you once said, nothing more and nothing less. Use this to make us who you want us to be. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Should I be seated? As we look at this letter, it's important to notice the, the emphasis Jesus places on God's word. Verse 12, Jesus has a sharp, two-edged sword. Imagery is very similar to Hebrews 4.12, where the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Verse 13, they had not denied the faith. Faith used in this way almost always refers to the totality of God's word or the truth of the gospel. The idea of the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans from 14 and 15 is they had embraced beliefs which were contrary to God's word. And the beliefs contrary to God's word had led them to live in ways which were contrary to God's word. This is why Jesus hates it. Jesus has a, a sword coming out of his mouth in verse 16. Once again, similar to Hebrews 4.12 about the two-edged sword, but also Ephesians 6.17 where we're told the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Now the emphasis on God's word in this letter is important in light of the culture of Pergamos. Pergamos was a leading religious center in Asia with its temples and shrines dedicated to Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. And I'm probably saying that wrong. And Asclepius was the god of, of healing. In addition to temples to those gods, they also boasted a giant 40-foot altar to Zeus, three temples devoted to emperor worship. Now, with all of these pagan temples in there, you have to know sexual immorality was rampant. Because sexual immorality was very often a part of the, the way you worshipped these pagan Roman gods. And since it was a part of the way you worshipped, it was a part of the way you lived. Right? They went to the temple and they did immorality and then they went home and they did the exact same kinds of immorality. The city was so filled with immorality and idolatry. And yet in the midst of it, there is gathered a, a group of people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. They are united in that and they are striving to live for him. Now, to me, I think this letter sounds that that context sounds familiar. And granted, we don't have a lot of temples to Zeus or emperor worship going on in our day. But certainly there are many false gods and, and certainly temples and things erected to them. Certainly, while we may not worship Caesar, there is almost a worshipful devotion given to politics in our day. Certainly the immorality involved in those sorts of things has made its way into the normal culture of America and, and unfortunately even into the often the normal culture of the average person professing faith in Jesus. So the question would be, how can a disciple of Jesus remain faithful to Jesus in a world filled with such idolatry and such immorality? Not, not only did, this, did the immorality and the idolatry exist, but it was seductive in its pool. Right? It, it was seductive because, well, it looked good. It was seductive in that it was flashy. It was seductive in that there is just a natural human pull towards those sorts of things anyway. But it was also seductive in that was the culture. Everyone expected. Everyone expected you would go worship Zeus. Everyone expected you would go worship 
Caesar. Everyone expected you would take part in all of their parties and all of their sinful immorality. And everyone expected you would not only do it in the temple, but you would do it at home. It was expected. And so there was a the seduction of be like everyone else. Why do you have to be different? Why can't you just fit in? The culture was constantly calling upon them to abandon God's word in one way or another. And what we have to understand is what they needed to do is what we need to do in order to be faithful in our day. But as the church, as the people of God, we must never abandon the word of God as the foundation to what we believe and how we live. Because, again, the the world is noisy. The world is calling on us to believe things other than what God's word says. The world is calling on us to live in ways contrary to what God has said in his word. But if we're to be faithful to the end, then as a church, as the people of God, we, we cannot abandon God's word as the foundation of what we believe and how we live. So how do we ensure that we as the people of God have God's word as the foundation of what we believe and how we live? There are a few ways given to us in this passage. One. Embrace the authority of God's word. But in in verse 12, Jesus starts off by always does telling us something about himself. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. What does it mean for Jesus to have a sharp sword with two edges? To understand what he's telling us about himself, there are several facets we have to understand. First, we have to understand the symbolism behind the picture of the sword. Uh, The sword in God's word, especially in apocalyptic literature, often symbolizes judgment and or war. So, for instance, Romans 13 and 14 tells us that the sword is used to represent the government's ability to exercise capital punishment. The sword means judgment in Revelation or in Romans 13 and 14. Second, we have to understand the symbolism in light of other revelations of God's word referring to Jesus and the sword. Right? If you look at Revelation 1 and 16, Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. Revelation 2.16, we see again Jesus having a sword coming out of his mouth. Revelation 19.13 through 15, Jesus again has a sword coming out of his mouth. Right now, in Revelation 19, Jesus is using the sword from his mouth to destroy the nations who have opposed him and who have risen up against him, the wicked of the world. Now, obviously, this is not a real sword. Right? Jesus does not have a metal sword coming out of his mouth by which he swings his head back and forth and chops people into little bitty bits. Rather, the sword coming out of his mouth refers to his words. His words which reveal his will and his words which enforce his will. Jesus' words have the power to build up and to tear down. Jesus' words have the power to declare salvation and declare damnation. But Jesus' words also have the power to bring salvation and to execute damnation. The sword Jesus is speaking of here is the word of God. Using it as a sword is a symbol of its truth, its authority, its penetrating power. Jesus is informing them and us of the severity of his judgment and the fact his judgment is just because it is based upon his word. The sword here 
as it's used here, is a symbol of the word of God, which has the power to transform our lives and free us from the judgment to come by pointing us toward Jesus, the Redeemer. However, if we reject the word's salvation and it pointing us to Jesus, the same word which reveals salvation guarantees there is a judgment to come. It guarantees there is a judgment which Jesus himself will execute. It guarantees there is a judgment which has clearly been revealed in the absolute truth of God's word. The disciples in Pergamos had believed this false doctrine, which we'll get to in a minute. And it had caused them to believe things contrary to God's word. It had caused them to live in ways which were contrary to God's word. And what had happened was they were no longer like Jesus. They were now becoming increasingly more and more like the sinful culture around them. And they had done this because they had in some ways abandoned God's word as the foundation of what they believe and how they lived. What was true for the disciples in Pergamos is true for the disciples in Gaiman. If we, as disciples of Jesus in our day, if we abandon the word of God as the foundation for what we believe and how we live, we will drift from Jesus. We will drift from him and that we will become less like him and more like the world. We will drift from him and that we will begin to believe the lies the world is telling us. We will drift from him and that we will begin to fit in more with the sinful culture around us than we do with the Holy One who has died for us. If we want to remain faithful to Jesus, if we want to be a church that is faithful to Jesus, then we as the people of God, we must determine God's word, the word of God is the foundation for what we believe and how we live. And this begins by embracing the authority of God's word. And what that means essentially is this. If God's word says this is what Jesus is like, this is what God is like, this is what God will do, then we say that's true. If if the if God's word says this is how you live, And this is what's right to do. And this is what's wrong to do. We say that's right. That is embracing the authority of God's word. It is saying, though everyone else be a liar, God is true. This is who God is. This is what Jesus is like. This is what Christ has done. This is how I am to live. We must embrace the authority of God's word. Secondly, We must faithfully proclaim God's word. Right. So to ensure we never abandon God's word, we must embrace the authority of God's word and we must faithfully proclaim God's word. Now, while the folks in Pergamos had not embraced the authority of God's word perfectly, they had embraced it in relation to the mission of making disciples of all nations. Jesus tells us in verse 13, as he always does, he knows about them, but he knows uh, where they dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Right, he knows they live in a place where Satan dwells, it says at the end of verse 13. Right, they live in a place, this commendation is because they have been faithful to an extent, even in a place filled with great idolatry and great immorality. The idea of Satan dwelling there, it really pictures Satan living there. Satan had made himself home at Pergamos. He knows they are living in a place where Satan has a great deal of influence. His influence is strong. 
He has far-reaching power in their town. And they're not to pack up and they're not to run away. That's not what he tells them. They're not to go to where it's easier. They're not to go to some place where they would be more accepted and where Satan's influence is not as strong. They are to stay there and continue to be faithful to him and to proclaim his word. Similar for us. Our job as disciples of Jesus isn't to retreat when things get hard. We're to be faithful to God's word, faithful to proclaim God's word, as Paul would tell Timothy, in season and out of season. When people accept it and when they don't. We're to be as faithful in proclaiming God's word when everyone says, man, that's exactly what I needed to hear, as we are when people say, shut up, I hate you, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Our job as disciples isn't to retreat and hide when situations get dangerous or difficult. Instead, our job is to go into the darkness, shining forth the light of God's word and faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important for us to understand because as the world grows more and more dark, more and more corrupt, the temptation will be for us to retreat behind friendly lines and never venture out of it to, to come in here and look out the windows and curse the darkness out there to, to create monasteries or to create places where we we have our Christian cafe and, and we have God tube and we have God book instead of Facebook and we it's just Christians and, and no one will ever say anything that we don't like and no one will ever say anything we don't agree with and, and they'll never disagree with our beliefs or not like our Bible versions or our Bible posts. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. We cannot make disciples of all nations by living in our cloistered societies cursing the darkness out there. Disciples of Jesus are meant to take what we get in here and to go out there and shine that light clearly and boldly and accurately and constantly. This is what we must do. This is how we keep from abandoning God's word. This is a part of living under the authority of God's word. Now, the disciples at Pergamos had done this to an extent. They had lived and ministered in a place where Satan's throne was. They had lived and ministered in a place where Satan himself seemed to dwell and they had done it to such an extent that a man named Antipas had been murdered for his faithful witness to Jesus. Outside of this passage, we know nothing certain about Antipas other than he was a witness for Jesus. Now, Remember, if you were here in the early parts of the series, I mentioned that the word witness or martyr, it, it, the Greek word used there, it means witness. And that martyr did not actually carry with the idea of death until the second or third century. Rather, it meant one who was just a witness. But what happened was, over time, disciples of Jesus faithfully witnessed about Jesus. And their witness about Jesus cost them their very lives. They died. They were murdered. They were executed. Because of their witness for Jesus. And so it came to become an idea that if you witness for Jesus... You may well die for Jesus. And so martyr began to carry the connotation of death. And this is what Antipas had done. And this is what we must do as well. This is what we must do no matter how dark the world gets. No matter how much the opposition we face arises. The mission of the church is still to make disciples of all nations. Whether the world likes it or the world hates it, or the world opposes it. 
And we cannot make disciples of all nations without faithfully proclaiming God's word. We cannot faithfully proclaim God's word without fully proclaiming the gospel. And to fully proclaim the gospel, it means we have to be clear about these issues at the very minimum. Right. So let me say there are a lot of things people say today and they say I'm sharing the gospel. By and large, an awful lot of them are not actually the gospel. Right. So God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not the gospel. Jesus died. And if you will just believe you'll go to heaven is not the gospel, not the full gospel anyway. If we want to proclaim the full gospel, we have to explain human sinfulness, human depravity. Why did Jesus die? I mean, what's the point of his death? It's the fact we're sinners. People have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have to say that. Secondly, human inability to save ourselves. Jesus died to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. The message of the gospel isn't do better, be more moral. Stop being gay. Stop sleeping around. None of that's the gospel. None of that saves people. Jesus died because we cannot save ourselves. Jesus came to earth. We have to talk about the fact that God became a man. We have to talk about his dying, but his dying for our sin. Again, we have to bring sin up. Jesus didn't die just because he loves us. Jesus didn't die just to be an example of selfish, of selfless sacrifice. He died because we sinned. We earned the wage of death and he bore that in his flesh on the cross in our place. We have to say Jesus rose from the dead. We, he, he literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead. It wasn't a spiritual thing. It's not a religious idea. It's a reality. Jesus truly rose from the dead. And then humans need to respond to this message by repenting of their sin. Repentance toward God. God is right and I'm wrong. My sin is serious and against God. I have been wrong all of my life about what I've believed and God is and has always been right. And then faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for my sins. He rose again and because of Him... My sins can be taken away. I can be forgiven. I can be saved from the wrath to come. If we are not clear on these issues, we are not faithfully and fully proclaiming the gospel, no matter what we say. Again, this is really important. And and, and let me say this too. I think we have to say Jesus. Right? It's not enough to say God loves you. It's not enough to say God will forgive you. Lots of people believe in God. But what they mean by God is not necessarily what we mean by God. But Jesus is very narrow. Jesus is the narrow way. Jesus is the way and the truth. It is not enough to say believe in God. Belief in God will not save anyone. They must believe in Jesus. And so we must be clear about Jesus. And if we are not clear on these issues, we are not fully proclaiming the gospel. We are not faithfully proclaiming God's word. And if we want to be faithful to Jesus, we must be the church, the people of God who refuse to abandon the word of God. As the foundation for what we believe and how we live. And this means we must faithfully proclaim God's word and the fullness of the gospel. 
Listen, if you just want to say God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, nobody cares. Nobody ever went to prison for that message. No martyr ever died for saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They died for those things. Those are the truths that led to their death. Those are the truths that got them thrown in prison. It was those things that led to Antipas being martyred. You say, well, I don't want to be martyred. I don't want to be thrown in prison. No, well, nobody does. But if we want to be faithful, then we have to be true to those things. All of those things. Fully preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel requires us to say those things at a bare minimum. So if we want to be sure we're a people who never abandon the word of God as the foundation for what we believe and how we live, then we have to be sure we are faithfully proclaiming the gospel, faithfully proclaiming God's word. Thirdly, we have to go quickly because there's a lot to cover. To ensure we never abandon God's word, we must embrace the authority of God's word, faithfully proclaim God's word, test all things against God's word. Now, verse 14 and 15 detail some heresy, some false doctrine that had begun to infect the church. They had allowed it. This was their fault. It wasn't just that there was bad doctrine in the world or even bad doctrine in Pergamos. They had allowed it to come in. And the theological heresy of the doctrine of the Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was somewhat a, a subtle doctrine. And I say it was subtle because technically it didn't really deny any of these issues. Right? I mean, they didn't deny the, the deity or the uniqueness of Jesus. They, they didn't explicitly deny the, the sinful life or the sacrificial death or the victorious resurrection of Jesus. They, they didn't even really explicitly deny salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Rather, what these doctrines were, it, it detailed how they lived their lives. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of, the, of Balaam was essentially teaching that said, you can live however you want to, and God is okay with it. And embracing these teachings enabled them to live in sin. And it caused them to become less like Jesus and more like the sinful culture around them. And, and as we see in verse 16, Jesus was not okay with this. Now, ultimately, the reason this doctrine came in was because of their failing to follow the commands of God's word. Right. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearance. Of evil. I mean, this is the command on how we test teaching. This is what we're supposed to do. Now, the reason this sounds easy until someone we like, someone we love, begins to believe something which con is contrary to God's word. This is easy until someone who is really popular begins to teach things. Which are contrary to God's word. This is really easy until the culture at large says, well, I can accept this. This is OK. And it's contrary to God's word. But the reality is none of that changes the command from God's word. Prove all things. Test it. Test me. Test everything you ever hear detailing what to believe and how to live when it comes to Jesus. Too much is at stake not to. And 
And if it's good, if it's right, if it's consistent with God's word, hold fast. Don't let it go. Keep it. But if it even has the appearance of evil with it, if it's wrong, throw it away. Be done with it. You know, a lot of times what we've done in our idea of this person is we've taken verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. And we've taken that and we've divorced it from the context and we've built a sort of this legalistic thing. Right. So you you can't listen to, quote unquote, Christian rock music because it's rock music and rock music is evil. And therefore, Christian rock music has the appearance of evil. Therefore, we should abstain from it with that verse has nothing to do with abstaining from it like that. It has to do with teaching. So we test it and we say that's not right, that that is not what God's word said. I listened to a part of a sermon yesterday and, and the guy said, and he's well known, if I were to say his name. Almost everybody in here would know it. He said, when, when God told Moses, I am, he wanted Moses to understand, you are what I am. Well, that's not even, I mean, that's not even close to the contextual meaning. Aside from just the overall heresy and the same thing the devil told Eve, you will be like God. But he is a very popular very well known. And rather than prove it, many people just say, well, I like so much of what he else says. That's just one thing. We should abstain from all appearance of evil when it comes to doctrine. Too much is at stake. Now, the two doctrines they've allowed in, we have to move on. The doctrine of Balaam. We read about Balaam in the book of Numbers. A Moabite king named Balak called Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. But God would not curse them, obviously. When Balaam realized he would not be allowed to curse Israel, he came up with a plan to corrupt them. He counseled King Balak to tempt the Israelites into sexual immorality with the Moabite women. King Balak took the advice, the Israelites took the bait, and they corrupted themselves and were punished by God. This resulted in the death of 24,000 Israelites. Now, the problem of the Balaam incident is more than the sexual immorality. The Israelites were to be a people who above all the other people on the earth were separated unto God. They were separated from the world and they were separated to God. And going into the Moabite women removed them from being separated to God and caused them to be united with the world they were supposed to be separated from. Those in Pergamos who were teaching the doctrine of Balaam were teaching more than the acceptance or the acceptability of sexual immorality. They were saying things like, well, the world is different now. I mean, you can't expect people to hold to this sort of outdated, old fashioned, puritanical morality. I mean, you just look around. Do you really think God, if two people are consensual and they're of age to make the decision and they both find mutual pleasure in it, surely God wouldn't care, right? Just go ahead and, and, and be like this. Because everybody else is like that. The whole rest of the world is like that. Go ahead and, and go along with that. Essentially, what the doctrine of Balaam was, was a doctrine which said, it's okay to be very unlike Jesus and very much like the world. Particularly, in this case, in regard to sexual immorality. Embrace the same sexual virtues and morals as the world around you. God, God is absolutely okay with that. 
That was the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans we know very little about other than some church history writing. And based on the writings of the church fathers who lived about during the second century, the Nicolaitans essentially taught the grace of God as a license to sin. Right? We're under grace, not the law. Therefore, you can live however you want to. God doesn't really care. That was essentially the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Of course, this is contrary to what God has told us in his word. Let me, let me show you a, a passage, one passage, and, and we have to move on. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. Now, this is a great passage because it is all about grace. This is not a law passage. It's not a legalism passage. It's grace. The grace which brings salvation has appeared. And then those who receive it, notice what grace does. It teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly lust, and to live soberly or clear thinking, righteously and godly here and now. Right? So grace doesn't just change our eternal destiny. Grace changes here, today. If I have received the grace of God in my life, there is something in me teaching me, saying, deny the ungodly pool. Deny the sin, which you want to do. Don't do that thing which God hates. And there is something in me also that is saying, instead live this way. Do these things. Live in that way. So the grace of God is, it does forgive our sins. Praise the Lord. But grace delivers us from the penalty of sin. And then it delivers us to the ability to live righteously and godly in this present world. That's grace. But unfortunately, many people in our day are infected with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam. And again, this doctrine is subtle because it doesn't deny the uniqueness of Jesus. It doesn't deny the fact he died and rose again it, or it doesn't have to. It often affirms we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus alone. And yet it deviates in what it means to live for Jesus. It deviates from God's word and what Jesus says it takes for us to be a disciple of his. You could go home today and you could Google anything the Bible called God's word calls a sin. Let's say fornication. You could go home and Google is sex before marriage a sin. And there will be millions and millions of answers. And the sad reality is thousands and thousands of them would give you a long, drawn-out rambling that would essentially say, no, sex before marriage is not a sin. They have reasons. They're pastors of churches. They are seminary professors. They have doctorates in theology. They understand the Greek and the Hebrew. And it makes it look so appealing, so seductive, so right. But when it boils down, they're saying what God has said is wrong is not wrong. What God has said we cannot do, we're allowed to do. But it's more than they're saying we can do what God has said we're not allowed to do. And this isn't in my notes, but I want to read it quickly because it was in my Bible reading yesterday. 1 Corinthians 6. Know ye not the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So... Unrighteous people go to hell. That's essentially what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 6. But knowing how we would say unrighteous people 
is those people and not us. He gives a list. Be not deceived. So don't don't fool yourself. Neither fornicators. Sex before marriage. Idolaters. Those who have something other than God as the number one spot in their life. Nor adulterers. Those who cheat on their marriage. Nor effeminate homosexuals. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind like male prostitutes. Neither thieves. Nor covetous. Nor drunkards. Nor revilers. Nor extortioners. Shall have, shall inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on to say, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord and the Spirit of our God. See, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Balaam, what it says is, God's okay with this, even though God's word says, that's going to send you to hell. That's why it's a bad thing. That's why it's so dangerous. It's not just, well, you and I disagree. It is you're disagreeing with God. And God says if you do this, you're going to go to hell. And God also says there's something better for you. I can save you out of that and make you into something entirely different. And this doctrine, make no mistake, it it is damning. Those who embrace this doctrine, those who teach this doctrine. The Bible says... The Bible says the deepest darkness is reserved for them. They will go to hell. This is why we have to be sure the word of God is the foundation of our lives. Because when we embrace the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Balaam in any form, we abandon God's word. We depart from the faith and we are not faithful to Jesus at that point. So if we, we as the church, as the people of God, want to remain faithful to Jesus, we want to refuse to abandon the word of God as, and our lives, the foundation of what we believe and how we live, we have to test everything against God's word and reject anything which contradicts it. And then finally, submit to correction from God's word. Right. So if we want to ensure we never abandon God's word, we have to embrace the authority, faithfully proclaim, test all things, and then submit to correction. Verse 16, Jesus says, Repent, or else I will come to thee quickly and will fight against thee, against them with the sword of thy mouth. Jesus rebukes them for abandoning the word of God and becoming like the culture around them and not like him. And he tells them, because they have done this, they are to repent. Repent for abandoning God's words, the foundation of their lives and what they believe. Repent for embracing false doctrine. Repent for becoming more like the sinful culture than like Jesus. Now, repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. So they had to say, again, I was wrong and God was right. This teaching is wrong and God's word is right. That, That is the essence of repentance. I'm wrong. This teaching is wrong, and God's word is and has always been right. Now, this is essential because it's not enough for them to just feel bad. In fact, feeling bad isn't the point of what Jesus is. He doesn't write this and say, I hope you feel bad. Because when we feel bad, and that's all we do, we feel bad, and then eventually we stop feeling bad, and then we go back to what we were doing to begin with. That's not repentance. He wants them to do more than mentally affirm 
that they had abandoned God's word. He wants them to do more than mentally affirm. Yeah, that's right. I've embraced false doctrine. I'm more like the culture than Jesus. I feel bad about that. Now they're to respond. They recognize they're wrong. They accept they're wrong. And they respond by turning from that false doctrine. Turning from abandoning God's word. Turn from living like the world. And turn to embracing God's words as the foundation of their lives. Turn to rejecting false doctrine. Turn to seeking to be like Jesus and not like the world. And if they don't, he will fight against them with the sword of his mouth. If they choose not to repent of their sins, they would make Jesus their enemy. This means James is serious when he said friendship with the world makes us the enemies of God in James 4, verses 4 and 5. We cannot abandon God's words, the foundation of our lives, and claim friendship with Jesus. We cannot embrace false doctrine and claim friendship with Jesus. We cannot be more like the world than Jesus by sharing their morals, their values, their priorities, their attitudes, their actions, their reactions, and claim friendship with Jesus. By doing these things, we make ourselves the enemy of Jesus. And I find that a terrifying thought. But that is what Jesus says here. Abandoning God's Word, embracing false doctrine, Coming more like the sinful culture than Jesus is so offensive to Jesus. It makes us his enemies who he will eventually fight against. Now, one cool thing about this is he says against them. And here's what he means. Those who don't repent, I'm going to fight against them. Those who do repent, I'm not going to fight against them. This is where the church has the problem, but this is an individual thing. And if I, if I refuse to repent for these things, Jesus isn't going to come fight against you all because of me. He's going to come for me as an individual. And if y'all don't repent for these things, Jesus isn't going to come fight against me. He's going to fight against y'all as individuals because of what the decisions you have made. So there is in that both encouragement and a terrifying thought. Encouragement. It's an individual thing. If I repent and I don't go this route, I will not find Jesus as my enemy no matter what the rest of the world or even the rest of the church does. Hallelujah. It's also a terrifying thought because if I, if I don't, then it doesn't matter if the rest of the church is faithful, Jesus will come for me. Because he deals with us as individuals. We must repent. If we want to remain faithful to Jesus, we must be the church, the people of God, who refuse to abandon the Word of God as the foundation of what we believe and how we live. And this means we must continually submit to the correction from God's Word. Now listen, the idea of continually submit is truly the reality of it. Nobody has everything lined out perfectly. Nobody in here today is just like Jesus. Nobody in here today has every little thing they believe lined out perfectly. Their lives lined out perfectly. Lives a sinless, perfect life. None of us do. And so there are always going to be times where we we think something and it's contrary to what God has said. We live something that's going to be contrary to what God has said. We're going to do something and it's contrary to what God has said. That's not the end of the world. 
That's not the worst thing that can happen. Worst thing that can happen is for God to leave us like that, to let us stay like that. But what God in His infinite grace and mercy does is He reveals to us, you're thinking wrong. You should think like this. You're acting wrong. You should act like this. You're you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing. You should be doing this instead. And in that moment, our, our choice is to either submit or reject. Those are the only choices we have. So if we want to be people who ensure we never abandon God's Word, we're faithful to the end of Jesus, then any time God's Word reveals we're wrong about what we believe or how we live, then our job is not to find a way to explain why what we're doing is okay. Our job then is to repent, to reject what we were doing, and to try to bring our thoughts, our lives, into conformity to what God has said. And the reward for this, to him that overcome, I will give to either him manna, I will give him a white stone, and a stone in a new name written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. All of these promises in some way refer to Jesus. The manna, Jesus is the, the bread of life and the bread from heaven who satisfies our needs and longings. The white stone. In Pergamos, it was common for guild members to be given white stones with a name on them to grant them admittance into the guild feast. Jesus is the rock who grants us admittance into heaven. And the new name, the name written on the rock, told the, the, the guild who was sponsoring or granting the access to the guild feast. And the only name which grants our access to heaven is Jesus. So the overall idea, those who are faithful to Jesus... They find Jesus as their exceeding great reward. And what we gain in Jesus is greater than anything we lose in our faithfulness to Jesus. So as we come to the end of the message, we have to respond to God's word. How we respond, how we need to respond depends on how we answer this question. What is the foundation of what I believe and how I live? This is deeply personal. If it's God's word, and it, and it truly is, then the way we respond is to seek strength from Jesus to remain faithful. The pushback to God's word being the foundation to what we believe and how we live is getting stronger and stronger and stronger, and it will only intensify as time goes on. There is... If we want to remain faithful, a desperate need for us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Because apart from the strength of Jesus, we will not remain faithful. And we will not continue embracing God's Word as the authority for our lives. We will not continue to faithfully proclaim God's Word. We will not continue to faithfully test all things against God's Word. We will not continue to submit to correction. From God's word. Because make no mistake. Everything out there. Is against our doing that. The world out there. Is calling on us to compromise. The the foundation of our lives. The world out there is telling us. Surely you can't build your life. On a book that's several thousand years old. The world out there. Is saying if you believe it. You keep it to yourself. 
It's between you and God. Don't bother anyone else with it. The world out there is saying just because you don't think it's true or just because you think your Bible says it's not true, that doesn't mean it isn't true. The world out there is saying, why would you bring your life into submission to an ancient book which has no relevance for us today? And the pull of that is not nearly, it it is far more seductive than we think it is. It's not nearly in the stark terms I'm using. It is in slick presentations. It is in people who are winsome and charismatic. It is in people who are famous and well-known. It is in people who have theology degrees and pastor large churches and are heads of seminaries. And they know, they know Greek things, can conjugate the verbs in ways that you have no idea what they're even talking about. So they're so much smarter than me. Surely they're right. And we do not have the strength to stand in the evil day on our own. If God's word is the foundation truly for what we believe and how we live, then we must continue to seek the Lord. Give me the strength to stand. Help me not to fall. Help me not to waver. Help me not to compromise. And then if it's not... God's word is not the foundation of what we believe and how we live. And our need to respond is the way that Jesus said for them to respond. We need to repent. We need to submit to the correction from God's word and repent. Repent for abandoning God's word as the authority and the foundation of your life. Repent for embracing false doctrine. Repent for allowing yourself to become more like the sinful culture than Jesus. It's not enough to feel bad. The point isn't to feel bad. If you feel bad, you're the focus. And when you stop feeling bad, you'll go back. The point isn't feel bad. You have to repent. You have to say, I'm wrong. And God's word is right. And what I'm doing is wrong. And what God's word says about it is right. And if we confess our sins, I mean, this is the great thing about our God. The promise, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, the idea of Jesus coming to fight against us with the sword of his mouth, it's a terrifying thought. But that day is not right this second. Right this second is a moment of grace, is a moment of mercy, is a time Where the Savior who died for you is saying, do not do that thing I hate. In mercy and in love, I'm showing you where you're wrong. In mercy and in love, I'm calling on you to turn from it and turn to me. So my plea today is if the God's word is not the foundation of what you believe and how you live. Turn to the Savior. Turn to Jesus who is mercifully reaching out to try to pull you out of the way of the judgment to come. Let's stand.